0: Welcome to Science and Fiction, where we delve into the possible and impossible. I am your co-host, Scott Shukin. I'm a comic book expert and reviewer, podcaster, sound engineer, and really just all-around geek. I'm also your co-host,
1: Steven Shukin. I'm a PhD student in chemistry at Stanford, a self-identified nerd, and I'm Scott's
0: twin brother. Once again, welcome to Science and Fiction. Here's how it works. I will present Stephen with some crazy sci-fi concept and explain where it comes from, and he will help us determine if it's at all possible, and if not, how we might fix it to make it possible. And then I'm going to present Scott with a scientific
1: fact, explain it a little bit, and then we're going to come up with a way to extrapolate that science into something fit for bonafide sci-fi. Neither of us has heard what the other is bringing to the show, so our responses are totally
0: improvised. Now that last part isn't totally true for this episode because this is the beginning of a three-part series I'm going to be doing on Christopher Nolan's Batman. Wow, we're actually so, doing it! So I didn't we, know uh, that before we started the show. Didn't yeah, know. Yeah, that. I guess I, I did tell you last week, but I say a lot of things. Yeah. Um. So yes, I watched Batman Begins again over this last week, and awesome. that is what we're going to talk about. So I don't have one specific thing like I usually do. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to kind of break down uh, some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, good. Uh,
0: the The first one that I that I want to talk about, which is to me the most ridiculous, let's talk about the big MacGuffin in Batman Begins. Uh huh. Right, where the the premise, the most iconic OG premise of Batman, not from the very first of his appearances, but the original Joker plot is poisoning the water supply. Mm. So, that's sort of the premise of this one, that the the League of Shadows, uh, League of Assassins, whatever you want to call them, their thing is that they kill criminals and they have decided that Gotham is so full of criminals they need to kill Gotham. Right. So, they team up with the Scarecrow to put his fear toxin into the water supply and when the fear toxin affects everybody, Gotham will kill each other and burn and riot and thus they will have cleansed. Gotham, I guess. Really, I didn't f- realize
1: that that there was a League of Assassins who were sort of an accessory. I, I sort of remembered Scarecrow being his own guy.
0: Yeah, no, Scarecrow was sort of working. He did have his own thing, but he was also working for uh, Liam Neeson's character, right. Henri Ducard slash Ghul? Is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's weird. So he he's originally introduced. He's credited in the movie as Ducard. Henri Ducard is one of the uh, characters that trains Batman before he becomes batman when bruce wayne leaves and is like i need to learn to be batman he trains with a bunch of people Henri Descartes is always one of them in the comics yeah so what they do in the movie is they make him part of the league of assassins and it's er, sorry they call it the league of shadows in the movie it has been the league of assassins for a long time in the books okay since the movie they've got this whole league of shadows and league of assassins both exist thing but we're not gonna get into any of that sure so anyway, Henri Descartes sort of becomes Razal al Ghul slash al Ghul, however you want to pronounce it, uh, because they say it's just a title, the demon's head. And so he is and is not Razal al Ghul. Hmm. He has his people capture what it's only called a microwave emitter in the movie. Hmm. So it's, it's this experimental technology that Wayne Enterprise is developing. It's designed for desert warfare. It uses this is exactly what they say. It uses focused microwaves to vaporize the enemy's water supply. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is your enemy's got like a water tower, I guess, in their base. You point this thing at it and it all becomes steam or water vapor. That's so funny. I'm imagining myself like in the
1: lab, we use these, uh, they're sort of like hair dryers, but they're really hot and we call them heat guns. And we use heat guns to heat up solutions sometimes. And I just like... Sometimes you have to wait forever for your solution to boil. And so I'm just imagining a guy with a heat gun up against a water tower just checking his
0: watch like it has to take forever to vaporize. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Okay, so I guess we're already hit our first obstacle in the time it takes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so when when this thing is turned on, uh, pipes start to burst. And so the idea is... The fear toxin at the end of the movie is in the water supply, but it is an inhalant. It can't be if you drink it; it doesn't do anything to you. Hmm. So they put this microwave emitter on this train that drives through the middle of Gotham because that's part of a whole plot thing that's not that important. Yeah, and as it's going, pipes are bursting all around it, and the vapor is is escaping into the streets, and people are becoming terrified. Right. So here's my first question. Why? People are 70% water, right? Something like yes. that. Yes. Yes. So why aren't people getting vaporized? Yeah, I mean, they definitely would.
1: I, I, what I'm unclear on is whether it's an it's a directed thing, whether it's like a laser beam that's pointed at the water supply or whether it's like a bomb that just vaporizes all of the water in the city.
0: So the way they talk about it suggests that it is like a laser, but the way that it works visually, the way you see it in the movie, Uh it looks like it's more like a bomb.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Everyone would totally get. It. I mean, you're literally cooking an entire city in a microwave, basically. That's really what's happening. And so people's like eyes would be like exploding and stuff. Jesus. It would actually be a very like good Rick and Morty episode. To have like a
0: yeah, um,
1: a and world there's an, that's
0: there's our Rick and Morty reference for today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe not the last. Um, yeah. It, it, so. That's interesting that they have like both of these pretty crazy ideas, a toxin that's only potent when inhaled, which I have some thoughts about that. And then also in order to make sure everyone inhales it, we have to have a totally different device, which is a thing that vaporizes all of the water in the pipes, but not all of the water everywhere else. Uh, Yeah, this is this is not going to earn a ton of points. Um, Is that it? Can we dig
0: in? Well that's that's it for the microwave banner But I do want to tell you one more thing about it That the first time we see it get turned on It's on a cargo ship In the ocean (laughs) (laughs) That's great And all that (laughs) happens is like You see like some pipes start bursting They say the damage to the ship was catastrophic But Mm -hmm. uh, as far as we know The water underneath the ship was fine Totally fine
1: Yeah, I mean that sort of makes sense that like maybe there's so much so much less water on the ship than around the ship that like it you could be vaporizing that stuff you know and only heating up the water around the boat uh not to the point of of vaporization, um, yeah I mean it's so funny I'm actually a lot I I'm interested in this toxin that is only potent when it's inhaled that people are drinking it because that's not very common right I would think that would only be true for like a pro drug that requires heat to convert it into uh, an actual active drug. And so it's not really the vapor part, but the actual chemical structure that changes because of heat. And then the other option is if you're taking a drug that is oral, so it goes into your stomach, that can get degraded by acid and enzymes in your stomach. Whereas if you inhale it, something a drug that's not stable to the stomach can be stable to the lungs because it doesn't have the same
0: kind of environment yeah my thought the reason why I didn't I didn't even really think about bringing that up as something we should discuss yeah although obviously it clearly is is because uh, I do know that for 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 THC the active drug in marijuana yeah um, again I live in Bellingham uh, <laughs> you need you need to heat it that's why that's why you make brownies out of it or whatever
1: uh is that true I, I think. I, I don't think you need to heat it, actually. I think that it's already in the plant, and as long as you extract it, it just so happens that all the methods for extraction involve heat.
0: Okay, like so I, the heat doesn't create the active ingredient, or doesn't it, the heat doesn't activate the THC, the no. heat just gets it to bond to the butter so you can make brownies. Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. But, I mean, it changes the, it changes the pharmacokinetics. So if you smoke
0: it, you get high way faster than if you eat it, which everyone knows that's true i am kind of sold on what you said about the stomach acids though yeah that this right. the fear toxin could very simply not be strong enough to withstand stomach acid yeah right yeah
1: cool all right so then this vaporizer thing i mean as we discussed it's just it's hilarious to imagine the just explosions of body parts that would happen <laughs> if you use this thing on a, on a city full of people another thing is that to get to the pipes, microwaves have to penetrate, you know, soil and ground and buildings and all sorts of stuff that absorb microwaves. I mean, people are obsessed with this idea that microwaves are all about water absorbing energy. And it's true, like water absorbs microwaves really well, better than other things. Uh, but your plate still gets hot because your plate absorbs some microfa- microwaves too. So... It wouldn't work as it would just everything would just get really hot. <laughs> it would just make be really warm and unpleasant hot day in Gotham. Yeah, it would be scary. You That would be enough to scare everyone. It's <laughs> just by boiling the city alive. You don't need the fear toxin. That's uh too much. There you go. We didn't even need a scarecrow. Yeah, that's uh the use the word MacGuffin back
0: there. So maybe to, just define that. So, a MacGuffin is literally just a plot device. It's a thing that moves the plot forward or the thing that everybody in the story is worried about. So, uh, for example, the original MacGuffin is probably the Holy Grail of, all of Arthurian legend. Hmm. Right? Go find this Holy Grail. That's all you need. And that is the MacGuffin that creates everybody's going forward to find this thing, and that's why they're doing it. Um, when asked what's in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction... Quentin Tarantino's answer is simply a MacGuffin. It doesn't matter what it was; it was just something to move the plot forward. Right. Yeah, and so and so, yeah. The 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 MacGuffin in in Batman Begins that sort of moves the plot forward, gets everybody worried about something. Is Wayne Enterprise losing this? Um, also, Batman's parents dying. That <laughs> that's a big part of it. That's a pretty big part of the Batman story. You said something funny to me one time, which was it was
1: something like. How many more fucking times am I going to have to watch Bruce? Uh, I was going to say Bruce Banner. Bruce Wayne's parents die. It's just Bruce Wayne's parents die so
0: often, and we see it all the time. Wh- how much is enough? I gotta. I gotta say that's first of all, that joke is older than I am because that's how many times Bruce parents have been killed. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and it's actually as a Batman fan, it doesn't annoy me the way a lot of people are annoyed by okay. it because okay. it's a common complaint. I hear this about Spider-Man too. Everybody knows about Bruce's parents. Everybody knows about uncle Ben. Why do we see it? Right. I especially heard this a lot. when talking about Batman V Superman. Okay. Uh, where every, you know, they, they started out with an established Batman, but they still showed us the Wayne murders uh, in the opening credits. Really? Yeah. I think it's a really good way of dealing with the Wayne murders. Just make it the opening credits. Everybody knows what's happening. You can read the starring actors if you want to. But the reason I agree with that and think it's funny. Yeah, yeah, me too. But the reason why you do it, the reason why everybody does it is that is Bruce Wayne's PTSD moment. He goes back to it all the time. He very often is triggered to flash back to the death of his parents. And so, as a visual storyteller, you need that visual reference point. Mm, You're not Zack Snyder doesn't show us Martha getting killed in the beginning. So that we know where Batman comes from. He shows us the death Mm -hmm. so that at the end we understand why Batman is shaken out of his like laser focused desire to take down Superman by the mention of his mother. Because that's how Mm. that's how much it affects him. And so you need to be able to go back to that to show that Bruce is freaking out when he sees the pearls.
1: Is it Zack Snyder made uh, Batman versus Superman and Martha's
0: Batman's mom? That is all correct. Yes. Cool. Okay, so more on Batman Begins, which uh for the record was by Christopher Nolan um and David Goyer, who David Goyer also helped write BVS. A hmm. lot of people did. Okay. So in Batman Begins they do they do show a lot of where Bruce came from and how you know, the sort of the techie part of here's how it happens is the montage where Bruce Wayne goes to Lucius Fox and says, Here's all this gear I need. Hmm. And the one that stands out to me the most, well, first of all, there's the small thing of the Batmobile, which is this giant this giant tank like car yeah. that was designed to help build bridges in in war. It was too expensive to be profitable, but the idea is you could jump over a canyon in it, it would tow cables and they could get they could build a bridge. huh. Did they say that in the movie? They say exactly that in the movie, huh. that they couldn't basically they couldn't that. get the cables and bridges to work, but the vehicle worked fine. Interesting. So that's why they still have it. So as they're as they're test driving it, Lucius Fox says you can press this boost and it'll create a rampless jump. I would love to see.
1: I would I mean, I'm not an engineer, so I actually can't really evaluate. like it may it may make sense to build a vehicle to carry cables across a canyon, but that just doesn't seem right. Well, that's,
0: that's not the issue. It's, it's, Sorry. It's, yeah, keep going. It's rampless jump that bothers me. Yeah, right. That's the big thing is that like, I, I believe you could jump something over a canyon and you right. could have a cable with you. That's yeah. real easy. Yes. Doing it without a ramp suggests some sort of lift and no amount of speed gives you lift without wings of some sort, right? Well, I, w- I immediately thought of hydraulics, just wheels, the wheels push against the ground. That's fair and we do the wheels do look like they are on hinges that they could do that. Uh-huh. But I will say the way that it shows us in the movie is when he presses the button a jet engine ignites in the back of the Batmobile and it rockets forward.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's not uh, that's Doesn't not real. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you think like maybe, yeah, no way. You think maybe like if it if the thrust were angled sort of upwards so that it pushed the back of the tank down and then that sort of generated lift because the car just sort of lifts up and yeah no way it's not it like it requires so much
0: force yeah yeah, and wings as you said yeah just insane yeah so Batmobile easily that's just ridiculous should have just this, been hydraulics you're right it should have been
1: yeah just Instead crazy
0: just, crazy strong but then wanted to put a flamethrower on they the They wanted of a Batmobile. rocket. yeah they wanted yeah. it to be a rocket so <laughs> the, the craziest part to me is the wings or the cape or whichever one he chooses for it to be uh huh Lucius describes it as memory cloth. It's regularly flexible. He picks it up and it's just normal cloth. But if you put a current through it, he says the molecules realign and it becomes rigid and it sort of inflates. It looks like it almost inflates and becomes taut. and, And, you know, if it's on a rigid skeleton, it'll poof out. Yeah, that's interesting. That's actually not too far
1: from reality. I mean, there are materials called um, piezoelectrics, for example, where their electron conducting and resisting properties uh, change based on how much pressure you apply to it. And I think there are cases also where, yes, there are, where you can apply a current to a material and it will expand or contract.
0: So that's not too far off from rigidifying. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the skeleton has to be rigid, but all it says is that the molecules, quote, realign. So if if, like you say, expanding, to me, that's the one that works the best. Right.
1: And I'm also referring most of this time to materials that are sort of... We call them extended solids and they're basically a single very large molecule and it's atoms that are realigning rather than it would be a little bit less accurate to call them molecules that realign. I think that there are organic materials that are made of organic molecules that their structures do change based on certain things like oxidation and reduction electrochemistry. But I don't think that uh, applying a voltage to those kinds of materials would
0: Rearrange molecules. I think that's a small... I would say just rearranging atoms. Wow. So the terminology is a little wrong, but you're saying that like when Batman is falling and his cape is flapping and then he runs a current through it and then all of a sudden his cape becomes taut and he can like glide down on it that that part actually holds up. Yeah, I would give it I would give it probably a solid C or a B
1: uh, because of what I just said, that there are materials. Now, a a fabric like material, that's a whole different story, something that's flexible and soft and insulates you for warmth or something. Just I guess being flexible in this case is all you need so that the wings are collapsible that then will become totally rigid when you I mean, that's obviously science fiction. uh, But in
0: principle, it could happen. So the most believable part of all the things that I – we have the villain's weapon, we have the Batmobile, and Batman flying. And <laughs> Batman's flight is the believable one. That's the one. That's it. That's the B. That is hilarious. The B grade. Now, there's there's – I'm using up uh, a certain amount of time here, but I I do have one more thing I want to talk about just because I think this part is really cool, and I feel like it's going to get a solid grade. There's a little whistle in Batman's shoe that emits a sound or frequency that makes a bunch of bats fly to him. Like a dog whistle, but for bats. Yeah. That sounds legit to me. Yeah, for sure.
1: Especially because uh, I think most people know this by now, but bats being able to see in the dark is because of echolocation, which is all based on them being able to hear frequencies
0: that other animals can't hear. So, yeah, totally. Cool. All right. You know, I expected a little bit worse from Batman Begins. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of impressed by it. Yeah, I think the
1: practicality of the fear toxin thing and also like a fear toxin on its own would be a huge advance for science from what we have today. There isn't a molecule that you could take that would make you just afraid. I mean, the, the psychoactive molecules we have stimulate your brain in, in t- ways that are too non-selective for that. And then, of course, the idea that it's just an inhalant and has no effect drinking is beyond feasibility, and then to be able to provide a dose of it to the entire city and provide it via vaporizing the water, that's all crazy. But the gear, is, the gear is pretty solid, I think, in terms of science. I mean, that's the thing. It's like engineering needs to go a much
0: longer way, but that's a different podcast. right? right. And that's and that's where science fiction, thats I think where good science fiction comes from, that's what we're all about on the show, is it's all good except for it needs a little bit more, and that's where it becomes fantasy. Absolutely. And that's the fun of it. Um, And that, you know, it does kind of make sense that Batman stuff is pretty solid, but the villain stuff doesn't really make sense because in, in Batman comics, Batman's just a man and his villains are not. Yeah, I was thinking about I was thinking about
1: the difference between science and engineering when Mark Zuckerberg was doing his testimony this week, because it seems like computers sort of advanced so much faster than the public was able to grasp. The fact that our legislators have such a poor understanding of computers is different than, you know, biological sciences have progressed, but just not quite as fast. And I think people are able to, and I'm going to talk about one of these, I'm going to talk about this very technology today. People have responded to biological things that are scary in a way that's pretty informed relative to how they respond to computers. It's just totally mystical to them.
0: And I was thinking that science progress. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know if I would grant that premise when a bunch of people are giving their kids measles because they're afraid of a vaccine for measles. That's very true. And I think – but I would also say that those same people who
1: like anti-vaxxers are even further from understanding computers than our legislators are. At the very least, we're able to educate our legislators about bioethics. But – and this was just a thought, that science progresses slowly. Science is very hard, whereas with, engine, you know, a computer is built of components that are all pretty well understood by scientists. It just took engineers to put it all together. And I think that can happen much faster.
0: I I believe you. I mean, you would definitely know better than I, but that sounds right to me uh, and is really fascinating. Although I wonder if it's less about the speed at which science versus engineering go and more about how new some of these things are engineering is not new but computer engineering is very new right and so going from you know we've got nothing to we've got this might be easier given all the scientific history that we do know whereas science started from uh, you know less of an informed place yeah like we, with, we, we made computers, we already knew about electronics, right? but we had to discover the electron and we didn't really have anything to go on except for lightning. Yeah, exactly. I could be wrong though in that, you know, in a few decades,
1: I'll be talking about whatever biotechnology we have then in the same way as what I'm talking about computer technology now.
0: Right, but the word technology is still in there. There will still be incredible engineering advancements that allow biotech to go forward. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think you're right. Particularly the miniaturization of everything.
1: Yeah. So this is a great segue to my uh, science fact. All right, let's go. And the science fact is, and and people know this pretty well right now, but scientists have discovered ways to edit the genome of a cell and therefore an organism – That is easier and faster and more reliable than ever before. And it's probably going to change life as we know it very soon.
0: So genetic editing is what you're describing, which to me sounds like right changing the genes of something, deciding that it's going to have red hair or brown hair, for example? Yes, yes, right. How how is my life going to change by this? Just give me sort of an example of, of what you mean by it'll change things. So... First of all,
1: the technology I'm referring to is called CRISPR, and some people have heard a bit, heard of this. It's just, it sounds, it's spelled like it sounds, but without I the thought, E.
0: I thought that was that dating app where you find people with
1: frosted tips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Or people who are just really into lays potato chips. Did you hear the thing about, <laughs> um, about, uh, PepsiCo developing like lady Doritos? Oh, yeah, that was, uh, That was a short news story. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that I I listened to that interview with the CEO of PepsiCo and it was a great interview. And when she said that thing, I was sort of like, what? And I should have (laughs) predicted that it was going to cause this uh, uproar because it it was a weird and very uncareful way that she put it. Anyway, uh, no, CRISPR is uh, not a dating app. Um, But to answer your question, it's going to change our lives because... It has the potential to cure genetic diseases, and it has the potential for people to edit the genomes of their children, or rather their embryos, the embryos of their children, and select traits that they want. However, I'm also introducing this topic to sort of bring up why that won't happen on a large scale, but there are other genome editing technologies that are in the pipeline that might actually get there.
0: So it sounds like, like for me personally, right? Because that's that's sort of to me, I one of my favorite interview, one of my favorite interviews of all times when John Oliver interviewed Edward Snowden mm-hmm. about security, and he said specifically, if I have a picture of my junk online, tell me how other people see it. Right. And that interview explained to me the issues with cybersecurity better than anybody ever had. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I ask. What? well How does this affect me? Because It helps me understand it better. So, what it sounds like is, if I'm diabetic, I can have a child and I don't have the risk of of them having diabetes because I can change that genetically before they're born. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And there, wow. are, there are, but there are
1: asterisks and caveats to that specifically that uh, that apply to CRISPR, and and CRISPR could be very dangerous. Another reason it could change the world is because. Genome editing, and this has been known since the beginning of something called recombinant DNA in the 70s, people were really freaked out about recombinant DNA, which I'll define in a moment, because they were afraid that people were going to accidentally make superbugs that would just kill everyone on accident. Interesting. They were worried about hazards. So what recombinant DNA is, is just taking a DNA molecule and using enzymes to take out a gene and put in a gene from a different organism and basically creating hybrids. And it's a very slow process and it's very low efficiency and it's error prone, but it works. And then you put that DNA into an organism. And if it starts using it, then you have an organism that never existed before. And people were really worried about new kinds of life being created in the
0: laboratory. Interesting. And uh, how's it been so far? Any any apocalypse scenarios that I missed? No apocalypses yet, but... In the
1: 80s, what happened is that people started to look into how to change eukaryotic genomes. So I just talked about viruses and bacteria, but yeast cells are eukaryotes. I think yeast is technically a fungus, um, but being a eukaryote, which means it has like uh, a nucleus and mitochondria, that makes it much closer to a human cell and to a plant cell. And... In the 80s, something specifically, there was a 1989 paper where homologous recombination was introduced. So basically, the, the, the idea here is that you sort of wait for a DNA strand to break already in your nucleus, and then you have enzymes in there that take advantage of that and insert a gene that isn't natural. So every once in a while our DNA breaks and we have repair machinery that's built in to fix it. Homologous recombination hijacks that, but it's very slow and inefficient.
0: That's still amazing.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that was in 1989. And then in the following decades people were improving on this by trying to actually cut the DNA on purpose. So that's called a nuclease is an enzyme that actually cuts your DNA. And the two most popular technologies based on nucleases are called zinc finger nucleases and talons, which is a, uh, an acronym I don't have to go into. But as I said, these are enzymes that actually cut the DNA on purpose and then you put in the gene that you want and it seals it up. The problem is, When you're cutting the genome, if there's a mistake, that's a pretty harsh mistake, and it's error-prone technology, and it's hard to get it to actually work. If you do the experiment, there's a non-100% chance that you'll actually get the gene put in that you want, because it's just tough to do. So it's not really safe enough to be implemented yet, and definitely not to be public. Right. One thing that I've, I've glossed over here, which is a partial answer to your question, like how does it impact me, is that just the whole field of biological research benefits from these technologies. Because let's say you want to know whether the blue-eyed gene causes any other stuff in your body. You could delete that gene from the genome, and then you see, oh, the organism doesn't have blue eyes anymore, but it also doesn't have a functioning pancreas anymore. What's that about? And so by, by deleting and by adding genes, you can figure out how an organism actually works. In fact, one of my scientific facts that I've considered bringing here is that there's a huge number of genes, even in a simple organism like E. coli, which is probably the best studied organism in life. We don't know what every gene does, even in that organism. And humans have 20,000 genes, and those 20,000 genes turn into over a million protein products. So... All this is to say that biology is complicated and these tools help us understand it and it'll help us cure diseases
0: and other things. Okay. That's all That's all really fascinating, first of all. Thanks. Really, really cool. Definitely the stuff of science fiction in real life. Right. And I like how I just thanked you there as if I, I
1: invented nucle- nucle- uh, a nucleus-based gene editing. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a real honor. So now let's talk about CRISPR. Okay. So, so CRISPR is all, – all these things that I've discussed so far are, are natural things, You—you you, mostly from bacteria who actually use DNA cutting and stitching to defend themselves against other bacteria or from viruses. Um, and that's also true for CRISPR. What CRISPR does is instead of cutting DNA, it just runs along the zipper, along the double helix, and it pulls apart the zipper without cutting it. And it goes literally through the entire genome of the thing it's in until it finds the right sequence. And then once it finds the right sequence, it stops and it inserts a gene there or it deletes a gene there. You can program it to do either.
0: So it's like a search and replace
1: function. Exactly like a search and replace function. And it's a lot more reliable and it's a lot easier to do experimentally. And that's what changed the world. And it came out just a a couple years ago. And um, there was actually a big patent fight about it. And that's a whole different story. But now people are using it to do a lot of things and it begs the question, can we solve genetic diseases with it? And the answer in most cases is no. Is it no or is it not yet? The reason that it is not yet is because when you put CRISPR into a cell's genome, it's pulling apart that zipper for that cell's entire life. And so if you put CRISPR into a, an embryo, And then that embryo divides into a whole organism. Every cell in that organism has CRISPR in it just pulling apart zippers and f***ing with stuff. And so so there are off-target effects that are going to happen every once in a while. Even though CRISPR is very good, it's
0: not perfect. And so there might be long-term effects. Okay, so the next step, it sounds like, is basically a way to get CRISPR in there and then get it back out after it's done its job.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And or... To develop a new thing that isn't. So when you put in CRISPR, you put in the actual plasmid. So this is fun for Bioshock fans. A plasmid is just a piece of DNA. And so your nuclei in your cells, they contain your whole genome, but they actually contain also some more pieces of DNA from viruses and stuff that have inf- infected you in the past. And some of those extra DNA, one of those extra DNA pieces, if you did CRISPR on a human would be the CRISPR plasmid. And so without being able to do this, without putting in the actual gene, being able to put the CRISPR enzyme itself, which is called Cas9, being able to just put the Cas9 molecule into the cells, the protein, that would be great. And that is very hard. So that is the next step. But there's one more problem. Genetic diseases are not caused by, generally speaking, an entire gene being deleted or added to the genome. Usually, a gene, a genetic disease is caused by what's called a single nucleotide polymorphism. So it's when a single base in your 3 billion base genome is wrong. And if you could develop a gene editing technique that corrected that one nucleotide, then you would be golden, and CRISPR is not good at that. Okay, but there's there's a roadmap. Yeah, for sure. And what's happening now is that people are worried about the long-term uh, effects of CRISPR, which is why it's not being taken seriously as a treatment for most genetic diseases, but there are some genetic diseases where the patient dies in their teens. And so, in a situation like that, the alternative, treating with Cas9, doesn't seem so bad.
0: Okay, that actually... Uh, that goes into where I've been thinking about how to apply this in a fictional world. And 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 the, the, the first obvious thing to me is that you've got a, a utopia slash dystopia really ready to build right now. Oh, yeah. Right? A world without disease, a world without genetic difference. Mm. Um. Because, like, so hair color and skin color are both in your DNA strand, right? Right. So you could effectively... You could effectively decide to eliminate people of certain colors or hair colors or eye colors if you decided that they were bad.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I decided to bring up this topic because I'm listening to the audiobook The Gene, An Intimate History by Siddhartha Mukherjee. And this recombinant DNA thing that happened in the 1970s is the chapter I'm listening to right now. But in a previous chapter, he talks about eugenics and how basically the study of genetics got people excited about making sure the gene pool was only allowed to continue from people who had fit genes. And this devolved into pretending that intelligence is purely genetic and there was a racial component, and this is right. basically what gave rise right to Nazism and the and the every, uh, Holocaust. It,
0: right. Every single time we try to decide what is and is not a fit gene, it goes very, very poorly. Right. Um, which, again... Which again is it, which again leads us right into fiction, right? That you've right. got a dystopia there. Um, I think my when I think of genetic editing and changing genes, uh, my mind immediately goes to the X Men. Mm, yeah, who, who are all mutants. Um, and there even is uh, a storyline written by Joss Whedon of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Avengers fame. Mm-hmm. When he wrote the X Men, a scientist develops a cure for being a mutant. Mm. And and it opens up a lot of this sort of semi-ethical debate about are is mutant something that should be cured? Right now, as with most, as with way too many X-Men stories, it focuses too much on the fictional debate and not enough on the parallel metaphor. Right, um, but I think that's something very interesting where we would have to think to our like you could you could do kind of a very realistic fiction story where. We have this world where we can change certain aspects of our children. And now we have this issue of do we – where do we fall on religious freedom versus institutionalized bigotry and allowing people to choose how their children turn out? Right. Um, That's that's my first thought. And of course, there's a lot of bioethicism that goes with this genetic editing conversation. Right. It makes me think about –
1: The fact that the mutants in X-Men and also whatever mutants you would create by CRISPR editing a human embryo, their genome is altered from the embryonic stage and it just stays the same throughout their whole life. What would be cool is to be some, you know, millionaire villain who decides to alter his genome after the fact. What I haven't seen and I don't think has been done, but I'm not sure, is injecting cas crispr cas9 into a liver or some other organ and just getting that one organ's genome to change and then you get a super liver or in the case of some villain a super brain or wings or whatever
0: right so it's a very easy sort of make a meta human make a mutant origin story you've got with with crispr yeah interesting so yeah so there's a lot of avenues you could go there you yeah. can explain how you know you can you could even go the other way and have somebody's trying to make this CRISPR thing work, and they find the spider that bit Spider-Man. Because that spider clearly oh, has it cool. going on. You know, he managed to take this mild-mannered right. kid who uh, has a perfectly living uncle and completely <laughs> change all of that. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, so, yeah. So, so this is the kind of thing that, that as it, like genetic editing itself, becomes just really common fodder for science fiction uh and it's and it's kind of like uh how we talked about with the the duplicate the duplication of of rubber making synthetic rubber as good as organic rubber uh this is the kind of thing that would feel similar to a lot of other sci-fi but have a little note of legitimacy that scientists would read and be like hey that's a thing that's not a fictional company that's real yeah totally and i'm glad you brought that up too because being able to
1: manipulate the genomes of microbes makes it much easier to hack them into being able to do things we want, like produce polymers and other things like that.
0: So this is how we get Plastic Man. Plastic Man. Um, alright. I think I think that's gonna about to do us. This has been quite an episode. Uh, I learned so much cool stuff about genetic editing. We had a lot of good talk about Batman, so we should probably get out of here. So I can yeah. watch Dark Knight for next week. Alright, I'm looking forward to it, really. It's fun. And thanks to you for listening
1: to Science and Fiction. Once again, I'm your co-host, Stephen Shukin. This episode was recorded in Palo
0: Alto and Bellingham, Washington, and was produced and edited by Scott Shukin. And I'm also your co-host, Scott Shukin. As always, Science and Fiction can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at SciAndFic and email us at scienceandfictionpod at gmail.com. That's all one word. Feel free to message us with any questions or suggestions and come back next week for more of the possible and impossible. You're
1: literally cooking an entire city in a microwave, basically. That's really what's happening. And so people's like eyes would be like exploding and stuff. It would actually be a very like good Rick and Morty episode.